So he instructed the servant who was over the household, fill the sacks with verse, chapter 44, verse 1. The men as much food as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack, and then put the cup of silver into the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the money and his grain. And they did this. Now this is called the divining cup. This is the cup that the cupbearer would bear. That doesn't mean that Joseph is divining the will of the gods. It just means he lives in Egypt, and it's not hard to find a divining cup. But by getting a divining cup means that he's not just putting silver in their sack. He's putting a sacred religious relic, which is automatically going to condemn them to death, at best, slavery, for a violation of not just a civil law, but a religious law. And so he puts it in the sack. Then when they get on their way, he instructs them to chase them down and accuse them of theft. So they chase them down, and they come to him and say, Why? After our master treated you the way that you were treated and let you off the hook for being spies and gave you a banquet, did you feel the need to steal? And they pull a Jacob. I swear to you, none of us have done anything bad. And if we have, you can kill the man that has the cup. Just like Jacob said of his favorite wife, not knowing it. And they have just promised to protect Benjamin with their own life. And now they just pronounced the death sentence on them and not even known it. You would think after being in the twilight zone for a couple of days, they would not speak so rashly. Anything can happen, especially when the money was in their side. So to build suspense, he starts with the oldest first, and then down, 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 until you get to Benjamin, and it's there. Now is at this point that you know Joseph is testing him. Because if there's one guy that he's going to care about, it's Benjamin. How do you know he cares about Benjamin? Because it's his full-blooded brother, and two, he wept when he saw Benjamin. So he cares deeply about this guy. And now he's setting him up for execution or slavery? When Benjamin had nothing to do with his enslavement, this is testing. What is he doing? He is favoring Benjamin to an extreme to ignite their jealousy. And then he gives them every reason to turn on them. Because before, Joseph was not guilty of death. He was not guilty of being enslaved. But now they can go back to Jacob and legally tell him that he stole. Therefore, he is legally a thief and should be punished. And their hands and their conscience are completely clean. So he is giving them every reason to hate them, every reason to turn on them with a clear, clean conscience. But at the same time, it's all happening under his authority, which means they're not going to have the capability to really turn on Benjamin and hurt him. And the question is, have you changed? That's what all this has been about. It's not been about vengeance. It's not about, I forgive you, but I'm going to have some fun first. It's about, have you changed? And notice when they come back, they start talking about how they need to save Benjamin. And Judah steps up and gives, according to scholars, what is considered the most 
eloquent, beautiful speech given in all the First Testament. The poetry, the grammar, the emotions, the change of heart, the self-sacrifice, every scholar of the Old Testament unanimously over and over in commentary after commentary say that this is by far the most beautiful, the most awe-inspired speech that is ever given in the entire First Testament. And it's given by Judah. And Judah starts by talking about why they were there and what's happening. But notice when he gives the history that we came from Canaan, we came to buy grain from you, you took us in. Notice how he never says anything negative. He doesn't mention the being enslaved in prison for three days. He doesn't talk about keeping Simeon as a slave. He doesn't talk about being accused of spies. He says, you detained us. You kept Simeon. We went back. He leaves out anything that might offend this political man. He keeps his words very careful as not to offend. You did this, or you did that, or this is wrong. And then he goes into his father about how much his father loves Benjamin, how much he loved Joseph. And what you begin to sense is a Judah who has come to accept that Benjamin and Joseph are his father's most loved sons. And a son who's come to realize that that's never going to change. And he's accepted that. He's not trying to find his self-worth anymore in his father's acceptance, which is not exactly a good thing. I mean, shame on Jacob. But Judah has now come to a maturity where he's learning to move beyond that. And what he now has found is he's moved from a hatred for Benjamin and Jacob for their favoritism to now I'm okay with being confident in myself, even if I don't have my father's love. That will never change, and I can never find approval, so there's no point in trying to put all my self-esteem in that. To now actually finding compassion for his father, for being enslaved to this favoritism, knowing that he's already lost a son, probably knowing what it's like to lose two sons of his own. And you see this deep sense of emotion, love, and compassion for his father. And a desire to now want to protect and love his father to the best of his ability, even though his father doesn't love him. That's incredible growth. And that's what you see in his words the love, the affection, the desire to protect his father's heart comes out so tremendously. Where before he hated his father for his lack of love for Dinah, his lack of love for him. And now he loves his father despite that. And then he goes to the most favored son and says, take me instead. I will be your slave for life. Just don't take Benjamin. Is it this that Joseph weeps? Because this is an incredible change. See, Esau forgave Jacob, but he moved to another land. Judah stands next to Benjamin and is willing to die in Benjamin's place and talks with deep love for his father. That's true forgiveness. And Joseph can't handle it. At this point, you realize that this family has changed. That God is redeeming them. 
We've gone from one of the most dysfunctional families to an incredible act of self-sacrifice, which is a foreshadowing of what a later descendant of Judah is going to do, Jesus Christ, on a more ultimate level. And it's at that point that Joseph reveals himself. I love this. Joseph just talks, 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 and it says that they said nothing. He's like, it's me, your brother. I was sent here ahead of you. Da 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 da. And they're you just they're like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. This I don't know how to process. There's no folder in my brain for this. Okay, and they're dumbfounded. But notice what Joseph says: God sent me ahead of you in order to save you. What you intended to harm and hurt. God has used to protect him. He knows exactly. This is the biggest picture of the Bible. And this phrase, which is going to be repeated more concisely in chapter 50, verse 20, becomes the modus operatus for how God works all throughout history. This is the work of God. That what we do to try to harm, what we do to try to gain our own fame, our own money, our own security, our whatever, what we do for selfish purposes, even to the point of maybe hurting people, unintentionally or intentionally, God uses all of that to redeem. But God does not abandon a broken world, every though, every though he has every right to abandon us every right to execute us for our crime. But a God who does not look at the evil and say, I don't know what to do with that. But a God who steps into the evil and is so sovereign and so powerful that he can use it to direct a path of redemption and salvation. And a God that is so loving that he wants to do that. There is no other being in the universe that says something like that. There's no other being who steps in that you jack up their entire creation. You jack up their entire life. You destroy everything that they hold most precious and dear. And then they roll up their sleeves and step into your destruction that you created with their things. And they get dirty with you in order to use your continued evil to save you. Because that's what we did with creation. We took the most precious thing to God and we destroyed it. And we continue to destroy it. And he continues to step in and use our evil, our selfishness, to redeem us. And then he uses us and our imperfections to redeem other people. Because that's who he is. And Joseph gets it. Joseph gets it. Now in chapter 50, verse 20, he even also goes on and says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Now notice the subject there is the exact same thing. You intended to put me into slavery for evil, but God intended to put me in slavery for good. He doesn't say, you, God, was going to get me to Egypt in a big giant limousine with fanfare. And I was going to be invited up in the palace like I got the gold ticket in Willy Wonka's factory. But you guys went and mucked it all up and screwed up with your evil intentions. And so God says, well, I guess I'll get him to Egypt this way. 
What he says is, you enslave me for evil, but God enslaved me for good. So is it the predestination and the sovereignty of God, or is it the free choice of humanity? Yes. <laughs> the Bible, here's the thing that modern day Christians need to realize. The Bible never gives you one or the other. Whenever it comes to that big, giant, Arminian, Calvinistic argument, the Bible always says yes, all the time. When Peter says, you evil people, you crucify the Messiah, but God killed him so that you may be saved from your sins. Which one is it, Peter? Both. And somewhere in the grand mystery of the great cosmos of the universe, they both can coincide at the same time. But we're just too finite and stupid to get it. So we decide to debate and argue and be divided as Christians, which shames God even more. And yet he still uses us. But that's what Joseph's saying. God is involved and you are involved. Your intentions were evil, his were good, but slavery was necessary for me. Get me where I am. Because that's how God works. Now, why does God work that way? The Bible never gives you an answer on that one. He gives us hints and Peter to build character and all that kind of stuff. But one could come back and say, there's better ways to build character, right? I mean, if I did that to my daughter, that would be called bad parenting. But he does. And the book of Job deals with that issue. And he never gives you an answer. Never gives you an answer. But he's good. But he's good. Because he used the suffering to save the world. And then he's going to suffer in a worse way than we, he's ever put us through. Because he is good. And Joseph gets it. That statement is the foundation for the way that God operates in our lives and the, what he's going to do to his own life in order to redeem us. Because what the world intended evil to kill God, God killed God to save us. And Joseph gets it. That's true forgiveness. To look at that person who has harmed you and your family and say, but God allowed that to build his kingdom in some kind of a way. And I know as I go on, I will be able to see what he did in some ways, but in other ways, it's probably way bigger than I'll ever comprehend in this life, and maybe even in the next life. But if I have to suffer for the kingdom of God to grow, then that's the least I can do for a God who dies for me to make me a part of the kingdom of God. And Joseph gets it. Joseph gets it. And so he says, knows how he's concerned about them. Don't feel guilty. Don't be afraid. This is the perfect time to heap it on you. I've got you now. It's me. But he, all he can think about is them, their emotions. And he forgives them. So he says, now, go to Jacob. Get Jacob and get your families and bring them back because that's why I'm here in Egypt, to save you from the famine. And now you're remembering chapter 15 where God says, I will bring you and your descendants to Egypt. But after 400 years, I will bring them back to the land of Canaan. And so they're told, they bring you before Pharaoh and knows how everybody in Pharaoh's house is excited 
at this reunion, which shows you how much they respect Joseph. That in these two years, just two years, they've gained such a great respect for Joseph that they can be excited at a reunion with a bunch of people they don't have any idea who they are. (laughs) But Joseph is happy, and they're happy because they respect Joseph. And they like him. Which says something about his character. And so they go down. (laughs) Imagine that trip back to dad. Oh, dad, by the way, you know all those years ago that we told you an animal attacked Joseph and killed him? Yeah, how about that? He's now the second most powerful person in Egypt. Let's just focus on that part. Isn't that good? Jacob is elated. And they get their family together, and they go down. Now, on the way down to Egypt, God appears to Jacob. This is the first time and only time that God appears in the story of Joseph. Remember, he's indirectly spoken to them through three sets of two dreams. But this is the first and only time that God actually speaks. So we've noticed that God is speaking less and less as they move on. And so Jacob is obviously really concerned. Every single time Abraham and Isaac have tried to leave the land, God has gotten pretty upset or stopped them. And then when he left the land previously, he ended up being stuck outside the land for years. And he just got cheated and deceived over and over again. And God made it very clear, get your rear end back into Canaan. And now he's going back, he's leaving the land again. And he knows that there's no way he can survive this famine. This famine is way bigger than anything that Abraham faced. So bad that even Egypt is struggling. But at the same time, he can't leave Canaan. And so God speaks to him and assuages his fears and says, Don't worry. Genesis chapter 15. This is of me to save you and preserve you. You will go into Egypt and you will come out as a great nation. I will grow and bless you in Egypt. Go. And Jacob obeys and he goes. And we're told when they get back to Egypt, there are 70 people total. Now, 70 is a multiple of seven, which is completion. And what this should say to you is that God is definitely growing it. But what's interesting is this is exactly how many nations began the earth in chapter 10 of the Tower of Babel. 70 nations came out of the Tower of Babel, and the 70 nations what began the world, population. So what is God saying here? This is the new nation of God. Those 70 nations were birthed out of the Tower of Babel of rebellion, and God had to scatter them. But now we have 70 members in the chosen family of God that God is going to use to redeem and save and bless those nations that were punished and scattered from the Tower of Babel. This is the beginning of God redeeming the Tower of Babel nations. And only through this nation can those nations be redeemed. Now, as you keep reading the Bible, you're thinking, there's no way that's going to happen. These people are screwed up. But that's what the Gospels are for. And so they go down. And Joseph presents them before Pharaoh. He wants to give them the land of Goshen. The Goshen is close to the delta 
where the, the Nile opens up into the Mediterranean. And he wants them given that land because they're mostly keeper of livestock. And that land is way too marshy and watery to plant anything that really can survive, but it will grow enough grass that's great for grazing animals. And so since Egypt is mostly um, agricultural community, they're going to mostly want stable, solid soil irrigated by the Nile, where um, the animals can eat anything, any kind of grass or plant that will grow. And so he wants to give them Goshen. So he goes to them, the brothers, and he takes a few of them, and he goes to um, Pharaoh, and he says, present yourself before Pharaoh. I'm going to go up to Pharaoh and speak first, because that's just the way you do it. And I'm going to tell him that you're keepers of livestock and you're, 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 you're shepherds and, and that you come from a land and you're coming with your own animals into this land, and, but you need land to graze your animals. But make sure that when you talk, make sure that you tell them that you have experience with livestock, like cattle, because the Egyptians don't like shepherds. They don't like shepherds. Now, one of the reasons is we know that shepherds, the image of sheep and shepherds never appear anywhere in Egyptian art. But at the same time, one of the two staves that represents Pharaoh's authority is a shepherd's hook. And it represents, the, and Pharaoh often called himself a shepherd over his people. So we don't know, is it that they despise shepherds as lowly people or do they just despise that nomadic kind of a people that have no land of their own? Because we already can tell that Egyptians are very suspicious of foreigners, very distrusting of foreigners. And they seem to be even more distrusting of foreigners that have no land of their own, which is typical of shepherds who just pay rent off of other people's lands to take their sheep because they don't want their own land because they'll graze that land down pretty quickly. So they typically move from land to land to land so that nothing, the land doesn't get wiped out, and then they'll just pay rent to take a certain portion of the grass for their sheep, but move on to another land so they don't wipe it all out. And so that means that these people tend to be thieves because they have no sense of ownership of their own. They don't value things. So it could be more of that. So notice that he's saying this. Here's the whole deal. If you come in with nothing, Pharaoh's going to think that you're a drain on the economy. You're coming in with no jobs, no career, no animals, no food, and you're coming into an Egypt that's already in a famine and already struggling, and you're just going to become an economic drain on the society. And economic drains on the society might have a tendency of being thieves and other things too. But go to Pharaoh, and I'll make it clear to Pharaoh that you have your own animals which means you're not here to drain the system. And all you need is land to graze your animals, but land that you're not expecting lots of grain, land that's just grass, which the Egyptians don't really need a whole lot of that. But not only that, because Egyptians do value cattle and they revere cattle, let them know that you have experience as livestock, keeper of the cattle, so that you actually not only be seen as not a drain on the society of Egypt, but that you actually can contribute to Pharaoh's house and help him take care of his own house. 
Now you come in looking very attractive as a contributing member of the community and not as a drain. And they do exactly what he says. Now, some of the scholars point out that he tells them, they say, well, they go in and they tell them we're keeper of shepherds and flocks. And some commentators say, look, Joseph told him not to say that. And then they turn around and say it anyways. Well, that would be Joseph lying to Pharaoh. And that's not what we've gotten from him so far. But two, if you really pay attention, Joseph never told him not to say that you're shepherds. He, in fact, he said, I will tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds, but let him hear the bad news from me because he already likes me. So that when you speak, you tell him that you are also keeper of cattle, which he likes to hear. And that's exactly what they do. And so it's not that they told him something that he didn't like. They told him what he liked, and Joseph told him what he didn't like. And so all this is just to make sure that they're taken care of. And Pharaoh gives them the land. Now notice that when they come to Pharaoh, they talk to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh talks to them through Joseph, because that's the way a higher power would do it. And they're very polite, very proper, very sir, and and that kind of stuff. But when Jacob comes in, all the politeness goes away. Not that it becomes harsh, but it becomes more intimate. There's no rigidness in the, the environment. And Joseph, Jacob speaks as if he is the authority. And Pharaoh submits to Jacob as someone who's much older than him and has much more wisdom to him. And the conversation becomes more like two old kings that are old and retired, and they just don't want to think about politics anymore, and they're sitting in lawn chairs, drinking lemonade, and talking together. And that's what it feels more like. And so he asks, how old are you, Jacob? And Jacob says, I'm 130, I think two, or 30, and my years have been bitter and painful. And as the reader, you're thinking, yeah, because that's your fault, okay? But notice that he looks back, that my years have been more of pain and suffering than my fathers before me have been. And then he blesses Pharaoh. And if you, haven't, if you don't know this yet from the culture, the book of Hebrews tells you that the greater always blesses the lesser. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and Pharaoh receives the blessing, which already shows you that this family is head over all the nations of the world. That even Pharaoh, the incarnation of the god Ra, is submitting to this old man who is a part of the Abrahamic covenant because God chose him to bless the entire world. And Pharaoh probably doesn't get all of that in his deep theological complexity. But he gets enough that he's submitting to the blessing of Jacob who has been called by God to be a blessing to the world. And now you finally see Jacob being what he's supposed to be. And they're invited into Egypt. And this is where the Joseph story becomes to come to an end. And so we're told that the famine gets worse. And Joseph then mortgages. Now we're told that they sell their animals to Joseph. First they buy grain. And when the money runs out, they have no money to buy grain. And so they then sell their animals to Joseph to buy the grain. But probably more accurately what's happening is not that they're selling their animals, but they're mortgaging their animals. Because if Joseph is buying all the animals of 
everybody in Egypt and all the nations around them, then he's going to have way more animals than what anybody in Egypt can take care of, and all those animals are going to die, and they don't want to lose the animals. So most likely, these people are still taking care of their animals and still keeping their animals. They're just mortgaging them. And it wouldn't be practical to sell them. Then when they come to the point that they can't take care of, they don't have enough money now to these mortgages, they sell their land, which is probably also a mortgage too, because notice that Joseph makes a deal with them that they will work the land still, and they'll give him 5% of the land, um, or um, 20%, sorry, one-fifth. They'll give one-fifth of that land, which is the exact same as a tax in America. And so they'll give him um, one-fifth of their grain, and they can keep the rest. So, and on the surface, you read words like, they sold their land to Joseph, and they sold themselves into slavery to Joseph. And a lot of, now, well, some commentators respond and say, that's evil and bad. Here's where we see a flaw in Joseph. He is selling people into slavery, and he's taking their land away from them. And some people even go so far to say, that's why God punished Israel and enslaved them in Egypt. Well, no, 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 no. You've missed the whole point of the Bible if you're thinking that. And two, God doesn't enslave an entire nation because one guy enslaved a group of people. But you need to understand, one, slavery in the ancient world is not the same thing as our slavery. In American history, our slavery was just downright dehumanizing, evil, and demonic. And it was only, it was a result of Darwinism. Social Darwinism became the foundation for our slavery in America. There was nothing biblical, nothing commendable. Now, I'm not going to say all slavery is bad. I'm not trying to make slavery sound good. But this slavery is more like bankruptcy. It's indentured servanthood. So the first thing you must understand is that when you enslave yourself to somebody in the ancient world, you're only enslaving yourself for six years. In the seventh year, you're let free. If you're not let free, you have legal rights to go to the government and sue, and you'll probably win. So in America, you lost all sense of humanity and all sense of rights to be treated however anybody wanted. In the ancient world, there were laws to protect a slave. A slave had rights, and a slave was mostly selling himself as slavery because he could not pay the bills and he was filing bankruptcy because they had no form of bankruptcy. As a slave, you were provided food, you were provided housing, you were provided education for your children, you were provided clothing, you were often given positions of power. Many slaves were nannies, they were cooks, they were lawyers, they were keepers of the, they were accountants, they were running the entire household of Potiphar. And at the end of six years, you could buy your freedom and you'd be let go. And many slaves ended up taking slaves themselves. In American history, a slave would never have taken a slave. Okay, because there was such pain and suffering, evil connected to that. And now, that doesn't mean that you can't have bad slave owners who mistreat you, but you can have bad bosses at Nationwide who mistreat you. Uh, just because you have bad owners doesn't make that thing bad. It just means you have a bad man over you. The other thing you have to realize is that they are still living on their land, they're given grain to plant their own land that they don't have to buy because they can't afford it, and they only have to pay a 20% tax, and they get to keep the rest. So that's not like slavery, slavery like America. 
And then the other thing you must realize is they say, you have saved us. No black slave in America would have ever said that after being sold into slavery. But they don't view, and that's your best commentary. Don't let an American and today tell you what slavery is then. Look at them who were enslaved and what they say. And what they say is, you have saved us. So this is not, so don't interpret a modern day term into that. This is a completely different culture. Does that mean there was no bad versions of slavery in the ancient world? No, 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 there were. And, and by the time the Romans come along, slavery can be really good or it can be really bad. But at the same time, sometimes being a free person is worse than being a slave in this kind of a sense. Because a free person, think about starting and running your own business. Everything is on you. You paying all the employees, the insurance, the taxes, all that kind of stuff. Think about renting an apartment versus buying a house. When an apartment, the roof goes bad, they take care of it. They cut the grass. They do all that. You just pay rent. If you buy a house, your roof might cost a lot more than any rent that you would pay anywhere else if it goes bad. When your air conditioner and heater go out in the same year like it did for us, at that point, I really wish I was living in an apartment at that moment because it would have been cheaper to do my 600, 700 bucks a month than that 5,000 in one year. And so there are certain risks to starving and not being able to take care of my family for freedom's sake, which you don't end up being free because you starve to death, than to be enslaved and have everything taken care of you and never have to worry about anything, if you have a good master. Once again, I'm not trying to say slavery is good. I'm just trying to say it's way different than anything that we have any memory or connection to. Um, so don't see this as a negative thing. And so Joseph saves them. And that's the end of the Joseph story. Now, we end in chapter 48 with the end of the Genesis patriarch story. 